podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to week 54 in the Chelsea household. Kerry is downstairs doing not very much and Andy's upstairs doing even less. Would that be right, Andy? Or Why are you talking what? in a Welsh accent? <laughs> oh, very good. Look at you starting with the humour straight away. It's, um, it's, it's, here we are again. Um, how have things been for you? Because you, you were talking that it quietened down last week, but just chatting through the morning, you, you sound as though you're quite busy again. Yeah, it goes in waves. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of busy today. I might not be busy tomorrow. I mean, I have got some clients still. I am doing some work. Um, it's just the work isn't in the same kind of rhythm as it was before. So, yeah, I've just been on, um, you know, lots of Zoom meetings uh, this morning and this afternoon, as I'm, I'm sure lots of people are. It's just, you know, everybody getting grips to getting getting to grips with working remotely and and trying to get things done. It's interesting you mentioned Zoom because this has taken over the whole of uh, international meetings, hasn't it? Everyone used to use Skype for a long time, and now Zoom. I mean, hasn't the guy got into the top ten richest men in the world or something in this whole period? Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I think the ease of multi, uh, you know, multi-user uh, video calls is is what's made Zoom so impressive uh, during this period. You can have so many people joining a call uh, whereas with Skype it's a little bit it's, it's not as easy um, and the idea that you can just send someone a link that they click on and, and all that stuff I mean it's very good it, it remains to be seen whether Zoom will be the uh, the choice moving forward I've heard a few people saying that you know they, they, they're not convinced that Zoom will be the long-term answer to video conferencing well actually that that leads on to a point that I think you made uh, some weeks ago when we we're talking about would this be a, a wake-up call that everything that's going on would change the way people are does this tie into your thinking that actually perhaps a lot of people will just go back to normal and how they used to do things when this is all over yeah i think people will i think you know a lot of people can't wait to get back to work and have some kind of social interaction um and i think it's been really difficult for lots of people i mean i'm actually finding it a little bit difficult even though i'm quite used to it um you know so i think that people are used to getting uh, are really looking forward to getting back to an office environment if that's what they're used to seeing their friends and and interacting with people on a one-to-one basis and i think the key thing is how employers see it whether employers see that as an opportunity to not necessarily take on huge overheads with offices and leases whether we move more towards uh workspace working rather than leased offices i think it's it's the employer space that's 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 interesting rather than the employee uh, space in the short term i genuinely think there's a lot more uh, of a move towards home working generally, particularly in London. I can't speak for the, you know for other places in the world or, or for other regions in the UK. But among my clients and the people I work with, that idea of not all sitting together in an office eight hours a day, five days a week, that's that's already moving towards that. So it, th- there could be good things to come out of that because, of course, that will have a knock-on effect in- environmentally on our infrastructure. It could ease certain pressures. So maybe we will be hitting a reset button, however small or large. Yeah, I, I think so. I think we're hitting a reset button in all sorts. Have you seen the price of oil? You know, it's like apparently the price of oil is now in negative value. <laughs> in fact, they can't they can't give oil away. So if you were to pre-buy a barrel of oil for may it would cost you something like minus 40 dollars um you know which is an indication of how few car journeys truck journeys aviation journeys and other transport journeys are being taken and and other areas that use fossil fuels and oil and, and oil it that's a wake-up call for for you know for the for the oil industry and and for for the transport industry and it remains to be seen how many for example airlines survive as a result of this so yeah in terms of of the environment i think there's a huge reset button being hit whether we sustain that or that we just pile back in like we did before which is very possible remains to be seen but yeah interesting times on 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 all those levels well, you know, before you know it, there'll be dolphins swimming in St Albans, won't there? And that that would be a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it is interesting to, you know, to, to note that, for example, in Venice, 
the water is clear for the first time in something like 200 years and you can actually see fish in the in the waters of venice because you know there's there's you know been such a you know, such a lack of tourists and a lack of, of, of activity on the water that the water's clearing up and becoming cleaner. And I think that's probably being repeated on waterways around the world. Well, I, I think it's a strange time for us in so many ways. But actually, there are a certain positive signs that are, are actually being taken notice of probably because people have more time on their hands so they can go through all the articles in the paper that maybe they would have avoided in the past. And I think in, in a strange way, people are becoming more informed than perhaps they ever were, which also means that people have to be very careful about what they write because people have got enough time to say, hold on, that's not correct or this is correct. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure I agree wholeheartedly with that. I still think people are attention span is still pretty short that they are watching the headline news i mean yes you may have time to read a long read but we've discussed this not everybody does people are still working i I don't think that this idea that people are suddenly going out buying papers or spending more time reading is necessarily true kerry I, i don't you know and i think as well there's a huge amount of propaganda being pumped out there by by interested parties and parties with an agenda so everything you read about COVID-19 or the coronavirus has got some level of spin attached to it, whether it's from somebody who, you know, is an anti-vaxxer or the government wanting to put their own kind of spin on it or a conspiracy theory or people just, you know, from all, I'm not saying that it's all conspiracy theories, but from all different sides, there are perspectives and agendas and spins being overlaid on that news. So the idea that people are sitting down with a croissant and a coffee and, and suddenly rediscovering the foreign news section of their newspaper, I think is a little bit of a reach oh i don't know i i have <laughs> you have <laughs> but not everybody's but, like you Kerry. not everybody's a, a work shy layabout like you <laughs> well apart from you because you're the only other person who's got as much time to talk to me on a on a tuesday no but i i do think that that there is i i think you're i mean the, you might be right Kerry. i'm not saying that i'm right i'm just saying i'm 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 not i'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily buying into the idea that people are reading and disseminating the news as, you know, I, I'm not as, uh, what's the word, I'm not as optimistic or as, um, or, or as uh, you know, sort of forgiving of people as you are. No, you, you, that's, that's also true, and I, I, I accept that as well. I, I think also one of the key things that you said there is, is the spin from anyone. Look, there are papers I like to read and there are papers I don't like to read, and it's very interesting to see how one paper reports on a press conference in one way and then exactly the same press conference is reported on in another way. And actually, I found I'm reading less actual news news about, say, coronavirus other than the headlines because it is uh, this maelstrom of he said she said kind of thing or that's my point really yeah i i totally get that but what i'm saying is if i choose to read it i i kind of even the papers that i enjoy or the journalists i enjoy i have to be very careful about reading actual news that, yeah, look, there was a point. big there was a big kerfuffle over the weekend because the Sunday Times in the UK printed a very long read piece going into forensic detail about what they called the lost five weeks leading up to uh, the government's reaction to the coronavirus. Now, whatever your party politics are, then the point of this is not to, to make any kind of party political point. But what happened as a result of that is a lot of people retweeted or or put out that article on social media and a lot of journalists got very cross about it saying no 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 we should pay we should pay for uh for newspaper articles because that's that's the definition of a free press is that you know if we pay for it then that allows journalists to keep working and write this stuff and i and i understand that i totally get that but there is an element of hypocrisy involved in that as well which is you know copyright theft is everywhere if you've ever watched an illegal football stream you've committed copyright theft if you've ever bought a uh, a dodgy t-shirt on a beach on holiday that's copyright theft if you've ever downloaded or streamed something without paying for it on a music level that's copyright theft so journalists getting on their high horses and saying you can't retweet our work when you know for a while it wasn't behind a paywall um is a bit rich so you know and then you get headlines yesterday in the tabloids that are talking about all oh, the pubs will be shut for years on oh, by the way 546 people died you know it's like the the, the media is is made up of lots of different elements and you choose 
which bit of the media you head towards based on your own feelings and your political views and, and, and all sorts of, you know, all sorts of reasons. So to kind of look at the media as one big thing is a mistake. The media isn't one living single organism. It's lots of different things. And so therefore there are lots of different views and lots of different ways to slice it up. So, you know, the idea that people will sit down and understand the media or make sense of the media or have some more clarity about the media, I think is misleading. That That's my view on it. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a really strong argument that you make there. And there does seem to have been a, almost a change in the way things uh, are happening at the moment. And there almost seems to be this push for well, we're all getting a bit bored or there's a bit of unrest about this. Do you think the media on the whole are behaving responsibly or is that, again, too abstract a thought? I think it's. I think that's it. I think it's too abstract a thought to, to assume that the media should uh, respond responsibly. The media's there to sell papers. It's there to, you know, to, 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 to garner clicks. It's there to essentially make sure it attracts as much advertising and subscriptions as possible to enable it to continue. And so therefore the argument the argument, you know, the old cliched argument is we get the media we deserve. In other words, you know, if we want, you know, pub car park fights and, you know, terrible divorces and celebrity gossip, then that's what we're gonna get because that's what the papers will give us. If we want something more serious um, then it's available. You can go and find it, but it's not out there necessarily in the mainstream. I don't know. It's you know, it's it's difficult to quantify the media as one thing. Is my point, and um, you know, and 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 also to quantify people's approaches to it in a in a singular way. You, it, people have very different approaches to the way they consume media. I tend to watch the coronavirus, COVID nineteen briefing every day. And I look at stuff on Twitter and other bits of social media, but I don't buy a newspaper. My wife, however, subscribes to a couple of newspapers and a couple of American newspapers. She devours the news and she devours long reads. I don't, it's not the way I do it. So we're all different and you do it differently as well. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. You can have X number of papers, X number of opinions, but at the end of the day, you'll only pick out the ones that some, for somehow connect to you or you, you find an interest within perhaps the opening statement, perhaps. So, yeah. I mean, so there's only one thing we can all agree on, isn't there? Go on, then. D- don't buy the sun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, ca- I can't... Have you ever bought the sun? I no. mean, away from work, no. No. No, neither have I. No, no, not because I'm a snob, because it's just an absolute piece of garbage, you know, and it's a hateful and misanthropic and sociopathic newspaper and you know should be consigned to the dustbin of history but you have to give them one thing though andy at least they're consistent (laughs) (laughs) consistently appalling yeah Yeah. exactly so your week how's it been have you been out running any incidents any you know andy saunders moments this week or has it been quiet on that front for you it's reasonably quiet i have to say weather's been nice so that's been that's been nice very lucky I've got a garden, you know, I can sit in the garden like you, you know, so, so that's been nice. And yeah, you know, I've done a little bit of running. I found the running thing a bit weird, though, because I got myself up to 5k in four weeks, which I was very happy about. And then, I, and then I've been very weary over the last week, and I haven't been able to quite match it. I've been, you know, I don't know if other people find this, but the, you know, sometimes I feel like I could run forever, and other days I think I could run for about 1k and then collapse. And I don't know what it's to do, whether it's diet or whether it's the time of day or, or whatever, but I'm, fi- I'm sort of working my body's responses to running out. It's very strange. It's not well, consistent. Well, that's, that's quite an interesting point because I find that actually I've got a, a, a bike machine here and I hit my record within half an hour last week. And um, What's your record? Uh, 7.2 uh, miles. Okay. And um, I haven't been able to get above 6.8 in the last six days. So it, right. I don't know whether it's because you peak and you push. Yeah. It, I think there's an element of that where you push yourself hard towards a target. Maybe I should be setting myself another target. Um, and, you know, other times I just can't be bothered. I just, you know, yeah. my body can't be bothered. And I'll yeah. go out there with all the best intentions and I'll do a couple of laps and think I can't be asked. Um, and it's a big mental, it's a mental challenge, isn't it, running and exercise? Because I've never really done it consistently before. 
I mean, I've played team sports where you go out there for 90 minutes or in my day, you know, in my day, you go out there, you know, in my case, you go out for a, a day of cricket, you know, but it's team sport. It's not a, an individual setting yourself a sort of uh, an endurance target um, sport. So this is all new to me. So I'm finding my body's and my mental reaction to it very, very interesting. Yeah, you see, I use it on the bike machine in particular. You know, I, I'm lucky enough to be able to walk Lulu the dog. Um, and that can be a, a great thing to do. But I also try and get on the bike machine. And that's a different kind of thing. Because with the dog, the dog makes you go for a walk. The dog does all the running. Exactly. But on on a regimented system like going for a run or going on a bike machine, you have to find a way almost to, to cajole yourself to do it. Because... I don't know. It's kind of enjoyable, but it's kind of not. Yeah, I don't um, enjoy it. I wouldn't say I enjoy it. I mean, I know there are people out there who are addicted to running or going on a bike or whatever. I'm, I'm not one of those. I mean, it's a duty. It's very much a duty. I mean, I can see the point behind it, and I'm definitely feeling the effect. It was my dog's birthday yesterday. Oh, happy dog, birthday. Is that Calypso? Calypso? She was six, yeah. And Calypso, yeah. Yeah, and um, we went for a, a walk on our local golf course, which is, you know, walking distance from where we are. It was an hour, hour, hour hours exercise, and there's, it's quite hilly. And I actually felt, I felt the benefit of it. I definitely felt the benefit of the running. I mean, it was, you know, I felt very fit. I'm the fittest I've been for a long time. So there's a, there's a means to an end. But as a, as a, as a mode of pleasure, I don't find it pleasurable. No, well, I, I, on my running machine, I watch some of my Scandinavian dramas. I think it's perfect for that. Or South American drug dramas. I'm just watching Queen of the South at the moment. Uh, Recommended? Oh yeah, it's it's on Netflix. It's brilliant. I love it. Okay. If you like Narcos and and you like um, uh, what's his name, the other one, um, the Mexican drug lord, um, El Chapo. Oh, yeah, no, El, yeah, Chapo. El, El Chapo. Yeah, yeah, Queen of the South is fantastic. It's really. Have good. you read Have you read any of the Don Winslow books? Uh, I just started. What was it? The Cartel. Oh, uh, did, did, did you not read Power of the Dog first? No, I've I've got that. As, oh, that's no, the first. I started. It's a, you know, yeah, it's a no, trilogy. That, that's right. Yeah, Power of the Dog is the is the one that I've started. I bought all three. They were on some offer or whatever, and I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying that. Yeah. Well, I would definitely start with Power of the Dog. Yeah, that's what that, I'm doing. Oh, you are right. Good. Yeah, because yeah, it's Power of the Dog, The Cartel, and The Border. It's a three book trilogy um, by this American writer called John Don Winslow, and it's it, it's terrifying in you know in in a you know certain things and it stay with you for a very long time it's very frightening but it's brilliantly written if anybody's looking for a you know a decent set of books to read over this period highly recommend uh that don winslow trilogy the first of which is called the power of the dog yeah absolutely you got the order right and yeah. it is one of those books you sit down and suddenly you've read 60 pages yeah it's and amazing. <laughs> you just immerse yourself in it so that's pretty good yeah. um but yeah i and my week's been a you know it's been more yeah, how's your week same. been yeah, it's been good, although, you know, I'm finding things like, well, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. Uh, we had a, a real big problem on Sunday evening where all our plumbing went down, downstairs. No. And yeah, or, oh my God, what you would think, oh, well, I'll just call the plumber. Um, it's not that easy. Uh, everything started backing up. Nothing was going through. Dishwasher wasn't working. That was flooding. I mean, it was an absolute nightmare. And um, my plumber said, look, I don't think I can do anything. I gave him a call uh, because they, I think they are very resistant, even though they're emergency services, they're very resistant to coming inside the house, which is absolutely fine by me because I, mm. I understand that. Um, but uh, he gave me the number of somebody down the road who has a whole, you know, he has the proper gear for sending down cameras to have a look and, and uh, you know, uh, jets to spray through. And anyway, I called, gave him a call and he said, oh, yeah, I haven't got too much on. If I can get from the outside, I should be able to have a look and see. Anyway, it came around about an hour later. Um, it was like, right, I've got to prepare everything so that the side gate's open, that door's open, that gate's out of the way, the dog's over there, the handle's covered. You, all these sort of little things. Mm. You know, take out the drain cover already for him. And literally, he just walked in. Um, we talked through the window um, and appointed where everything was and explained the situation. And he said, OK, start running the water and start running the water. Nothing coming through. He said, OK, let's give it a go. Down with a jet wash. And honestly, the, the whole downstairs of the house started shaking. It was unbelievable. Mm. Jackie was in the front room and the pictures were shaking on the wall. And 
literally three and a half minutes later, he said, right, that should be all right, run the water again. And suddenly, I could see through the window, it was just flowing beautifully. How much but, did that cost you? Uh, 90 quid. Oh, that's all right. I yeah, a lot more than that. Absolutely. No, it yeah. was fantastic. And, well, there you um, go. So you can still get your emergency services. Yeah, you can. And it was amazing. And uh, he said that uh, he's, he's the only one in his company, normally employs 12 or 15 people, and they've all been furloughed. He said, it's all right for them. They're on 80% wages, haven't put their feet up. I don't know if I'll ever get them back to work. I'm the only one left working. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, congratulations to that man and his his machine it was wonderful great so, so yeah I, I guess so that's my week. we're all I, thinking about what you've put down there to block it up but we won't go there no he did say it was probably 10 to 15 years of fat that has gone down the sink so that's yeah, well yeah, before yeah. our time so there you go it was it was only from the kitchen it's uh, but the stench that came off it when he oh, broke don't, through don't. the fat ball he said hey, it's amazing you know and it was just kicking up the smell but and then it was gone um, amazing and he he uh, jetted all of it so that it just dissipated amazing well, that's enough of your fat balls yes that's, um, it's enough let's talk go some to, chelsea let's let's talk some chelsea well you know um i, I think uh, we could, we've got some more questions left over from last week right and uh mark hurley from from cork he sent in some lovely uh, part of the world cork have you been down there i have i had a wonderful holiday in in cork in southern ireland beautiful yeah, well, Jackie's family's all from Skull, which is oh, right I down know south. Skull very well, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, well, yeah. They're, they're all rowers and things down my there. F- my friend um, opened a cafe in, uh, in Skull, um, and we went down there. It's been a long time since I've been there, really, but Skull and Kinsale and all those beautiful towns along the southern coast of Ireland. Yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world. Does he still have the cafe there? I don't know, to be honest. Oh, I okay. I in touch for a while. I should find out. No, it's, it's a beautiful part. His name's part Tim Peacock. Tim Peacock. Okay. Yeah. Any relation to Gavin? He's <laughs> not a crazy, crazy Christian like Gav. Good, good God. They're, they're, oh, sorry, I didn't mean good God and Gavin Peacock, but we just mentioned Chelsea. Um, yeah. so- Gavin Peacock has, is a fundamentalist Christian now, isn't he? He's, like, he's properly um, devout. Yes, he is. Isn't he a pastor or something? He's got, a, he's got his own organisation, which is all... I don't know. I mean, I've, I've only sort of dipped in and out of what he does but yeah it's um pretty full-on you know I know he was always he was always Christian and he and I'm, I remember there was stories of him not liking people swearing in the dressing room and, and and asking the players to pray before games and all that kind of stuff but I think he's really really gone for it since he retired and he's now fully embedded in his faith um and you know has has certain elements of it which you could argue were a little bit niche worth checking out on social media Gav Peacock <laughs> Religion and the word niche is yeah. always a concerning, concerning exactly. combination. Well, it, is, it could could be perceived as concerning by some, but you know, it's his faith, <laughs> so he's entitled to it. No, fair enough. Well, well Mark had a couple of questions for us. Um, one was, uh, do we think that Ian Robin should never have been let go? What did we think of him as a player? Um, he was a fabulous player. Oh, he was. He was a fabulous player, but but he was constantly injured when he was with us. And I think to the point where he really quite fell out with Jose Mourinho. Mourinho wanted him to play, you know, and Robin was one of those players that wouldn't play unless he was 100% fit. And he, Mourinho got very frustrated with him. I mean, yes, he did pick up some some nasty injuries. I think got badly injured in a game against Blackburn, I seem to remember, and and uh, suffered ankle problems. But we never really saw a really, really consistent run from Iron Robin. And when you look at his latter performances for Bayern Munich, particularly, where he seemed to be an ever-present, it makes it even more peculiar. Didn't really work at Real Madrid, because he left us to go to Madrid, didn't he? And then didn't, didn't really work there. But when he went to Bayern, he became a legend. He was, you know, he was constantly in the team him and um uh Ribery, Frank Ribery, yeah. yeah were you know were the, were the sort of the you know the Robin and Duff of Chelsea um and it was his partnership with Duff at Chelsea that was that was really exciting wasn't it oh I love that and the saddest thing about that whole era for me and it still is one of the saddest Robin going was dreadfully sad but the saddest thing for me was that shoulder injury that Damien Duff picked up yeah, you know, and he dislocated it. He never ever got back to where he was, and it's such a tragedy for me because th- they were 
they were the 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 pairing from heaven those out wide we've, we've never ever had two wingers in the team quite like those two i don't think since no we haven't and and it was wonderful to watch robin was a wonderful player to watch i just think that there was clearly something there with him and Mourinho that didn't quite click yeah, I, I, and he I, wouldn't be the first player, would he? Let's be honest. No, and and also we know from Jose, once he decides that he's got it in, or there's something up with somebody, you don't, you you very rarely turn it around. Uh, yeah. And I think that was the case with Robin. But I do think they gave us such joy, and everyone talks about that that period as being, you know, Chelsea were, you know, hard, strong, tough. But I think a lot of people forgot how creative those two were yeah. and how when you get two wingers that can, can work it like they did, gosh, it, it, it makes everything seem possible. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I really missed him. Well, the, the other question he said, what do we think of the spine of that team? He actually includes somebody who wasn't part of the spine, uh, Ashley Cole, JT, Peter Cech, Frank Lampard and Drogba. Um, and I guess, in a way, Ashley Cole was part of the untouchables for me out of those players i loved ashley cole there yeah, were he times wasn't part of the spine no he wasn't but he mentioned him in his thing mm. and and you're absolutely correct he's not part of the spine but he was a key part of that side and for me ashley cole he was an extraordinary player because if you remember we had wayne bridge who was playing brilliantly for us anyway and then suddenly ashley cole comes along and he was a different gravy wasn't he yeah, he was a brilliant, brilliant player. Loved Ashley Cole. Um, he's right up there for the very, very best players that we ever had for me. And, uh, you know, when he left, when we when we sent Galas the other way to Arsenal, even though subsequently the Chelsea fans' relationship with William Galas soured, um, you know, Galas was a brilliant, brilliant player for us. And it felt like we were exchanging a Rolls-Royce for you know a fairly middle of the road saloon and actually we ended up with a much much better part of that deal because Ashley Cole went on to become an incredibly important part of possibly the best squad that we ever had and just to show how successful he was I mean he was considered a mainstay of that Arsenal side yeah. um, until he demanded money supposedly in transfers all of which seems to have been a little bit of a press illusion. I'm sure there was a certain amount well, of Well, no, he wrote it, a but... biography. He wrote an autobiography, didn't he? And he talked about it in that, about, you know, about how he was disappointed that, you know, so many thousands of pounds weren't added, you know, all that stuff. He wasn't very clever with his PR. No, uh, you wouldn't have handled him that way, would you? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, wouldn't but... let, I wouldn't let footballers talk, full stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's probably wise, although we'll get on to a couple who've been talking recently in a bit, but um, who've been, you know, there's some interesting things coming out but um yeah for me Ashley Cole he was a legend at Arsenal absolutely messed it up there uh, but you know still in a major part and they were all really sad to see him go but you forget he was an Arsenal player almost because of the way he was with Chelsea and yeah. how how well they gave him absolute grief as well the Arsenal yeah, they fans did. and so he's you know he, he turned his back on them it's not answering the question though Kerry which is about the spine of the team yeah, well, it he's was... not part of the spine. He was no. out wide. So, you know, nice, nice little rabbit hole and diversion about Ashley Cole. But what about the guy's question? Well, he included Cole in that spine. Well, he's wrong, though, isn't he? I mean, yeah, you know, bless is, him. He is wrong. You know, because it's not a spine. You know, the spine but, is the goalkeeper, the central defender, midfielder. Exactly. You know, and, and striker. You know, and by that, you're talking about Czech, Terry, Lampard, Drogba. Now, around that, of course, you can fit other people, particularly in midfield, you know, because you could say, you could take Lampard or Essien. Um, you know, and even Balak or Mikel, you know, and, and call them part of the spine. But, you know, it's it's essentially, isn't it, Czech, Terry, Lampard, Drogba, yeah. that's the that's the spine. I don't think we've ever had a better one. Do you think do you think we'll ever get a spine like that again? Because Who knows? They, yeah, I it, it's interesting because it, it's almost as bad as transfer speculation. Will we ever get this again? All you can do is talk about what we had. And yeah. those players, I guess we were really lucky that on the whole they all stayed fit the majority of the time, you know. I mean, if you compare that spine to Kepa, Rudiger, Jorginho, Abraham, 
it throws it into sharp relief a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, of course. I mean, not, not that there's anything wrong necessarily with those players, the latter players that I've mentioned individually, but the mythology around Czech Terry Lampard Drogba is so far and above Kepa, Rudiger, Jorginho, Abraham, which you, I guess you would call the spine of our team at the moment. Um, you could probably swap out Kovacic and Jorginho, but you know it's it's uh, it's got a long way to go before it gets to that level, hasn't it? Yeah, and uh, who knows if we'll ever see something like that again. All I know is in all my years of watching Chelsea, which is 50-odd years or whatever now, uh, I've never seen a, a spine like that at Chelsea that was so consistent, that played so many games together, that won so much together. Well, I you mean, could say, couldn't you? You could say Benetti, Harris, um, you know, Hudson, Osgood. You, you could, but... I'm not sure it's quite the same. No, I don't think it is. But, you know, it's kind of up there, isn't it? I mean, you can yeah. certainly, certainly three of those players. Well, it, that's interesting, actually, because I was going to talk later. We should talk about it now because it's come up. A friend of mine on Instagram sent me a message, uh, Serge Chillon, and he asked, what did we think was better, the 1970 Cup side or the 2005-2006 side? Well, that's a ridiculous question. It is, but what you can't compare... From well, you two can't compare, areas. and clearly the 2005-2006 side was better. <laughs> okay, see, there you go. So you have compared, and you've come up with an answer. Well, so it, we, it, it doesn't take any thought, does it? I mean, yes, look, the 1970 side was great, you know, uh, of course it was. And, and, you know, it was certainly a stepping stone towards us becoming the global powerhouse that we are now the elite football team that we are now but to compare the 1970 team man for man with the you know the top 2005 mm. 2016 doesn't make any sense no no i love it you're such a realist i mean there it's are so players harsh. in there are players in that 1970 team that would get into that side i think oh who well, I mean, we, there was a question. There's a question coming up, isn't there, about taking, yep. you know... Okay, you know, let's, yeah, we'll let's, keep let's, it. let's address it then, then. Okay, all right. Okay, well, look, um, which one of those players... did you Do you have favourites? If you picked one player from that spine, who would it be as your favourite out of them all? Of, of that, that Jack Perry Lampard dropper? Yeah. Oh, Lampard. Yeah? Yeah, no, no doubt. Okay, yeah, I think I'd agree with you as well. I don't, um, think you, I don't think you can look past Frank. I mean, yes, obviously John Terry. John Terry, for so many reasons, um, you know, in terms of leadership and commitment and loyalty and skill and, you know, all those things and a brilliant, brilliant defender. But, you know, Frank Lampard is the complete footballer. And, you know, without Frank's goals during that period, without his, you know, all round abilities, we wouldn't have won half of what we won. No, I think you're right. Okay, well, look, that's a perfect way to end the first half of the show. So we better go to our break. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen, Check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. And we're back. So, okay, look, um, we mentioned it and touched on it just before the break. Um, we got asked as to if we could only... This was from uh, Doug McPee. Um, if you could only choose Doug players, McPherson, that is. Is it? Yeah. Ah, okay. I couldn't see his name on, on Twitter, but here we go. Here's his question. If you could only choose players from between 1970 and 1990, what would your first 11 be? Okay. So if you've got yours to I hand, have. please yeah. go first. Okay. Well, I don't think you look past Peter Bonetti in goal, would you? 
I thought about Tommy Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> so Peter Bernetti in goal. That's nailed on, right? I actually went at right back because I'm going to go 4-4-2. That 4-4-2 is my formation on this. So I'm going to go Steve Clark at right back. Okay. Uh, Ron Harris in the middle. Alongside Ken Monkow, who I think was a hugely classy player in a not-so-classy Chelsea team. Um, and I think our best, second-best left-back, and some people are going to argue with me, my second-best left-back, I think, is Graham Lasseau. And I'm going to have Lasseau at left-back, not Eddie McCready. Um, and in midfield, I'm going to go for a Duff Robin uh, switching sides situation. So these, so on the wings, I'm going to go with Pat Nevin and Charlie Cook, but they're going to switch sides throughout the game. Uh, in the middle, I'm going to go with Ray Wilkins, and he's going to be my captain. Uh, and Hudson, uh, and up front, I'm going to go with Osgood and Kerry Dixon. Oh, okay. Um, shall I read mine? Shall I go? Shall, I, re- shall I tell you what my subs are? Oh, you're gonna, you've done subs as I've well? I've done subs should, as well. Should, should you have just one, though? Well, you should do. Well, up to 1990, I think you're allowed three, aren't you? Okay. But, I'm, but I've got seven. <laughs> <laughs> so oh I've got my. Peter Barota as my sub-goalkeeper. Yes. Uh, Eddie McCready. Uh, David Webb, Clive Walker, Dennis Wise, who made his debut in 1990, uh, Andy Townsend and Ian Hutchinson. Oh, OK. Well, that's interesting. OK. Um I'll read mine out before we what even What was your think. formation? Um, well, 11 players. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's sort of 4-4, four, 4-2-4, four, 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 I guess. 4-2-4? Four, four? Yeah. That's not, you haven't picked a team then, have you? You've just picked 11 oh, yeah. players. Well, no, because two of them dropped back, so it could be 4-4-2. Four, four, okay. It is 4-4-2. Four, four, right. But the way we would play would be 4-2-4. Four, four. Okay. That's what I'm saying. So, Bonetti in goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary Locke at right Gary back. Locke, okay. I like. I, I don't know why. I just loved. He was also. He was one of those players who had a, a modern haircut as well, and and <laughs> sideboards. I Definitely just liked him for that. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, come on. It's it's people who you loved watching. I I love Gary Locke, and he was a great servant to the club as well. Yeah, uh, yeah no, he was a good. Player. Don't get me wrong, he was a good player. <laughs> yeah, just be careful about what you say about Gary Locke. He's nice um, to be Clark though. Oh, different area. I don't think you can yeah, compare. Yeah. Uh, on the other side, Tony Dorigo. Yeah, good call. I love Tony Dorigo. Um, and in the middle, just because it was so easy, because that first side that I fell in love with was 1970. And you could have put seven or eight of them in, and I really tried not to. So I, I put in David Webb and Steve Wicks. Didn't put Ron Harrison? Uh, nope. Why? Because I don't want him in my side. He's, you know, he's liable to get a red card these days. Any player from that 1970s team. Did you see that brilliant thing that the guy did? What was that? That they, um, I think I sent it to you, was um, somebody, or, or they got uh, modern referees oh, to, re- yeah. to re-referee the 1970 final and the replay. And apparently uh, they got, I can't remember who it was, it'll come to me, but um, one of the modern referees to, ref- to re-referee the 1970 replay and he gave 13 red cards. Yeah. Sent Eddie yeah. McCready off twice. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. So, okay, well, I've got David Webb and Steve Wicks. I thought I'd change it up. Uh, in midfield, I've got Kenny Swain and Ray Wilkins. Kenny Swain. I loved Kenny Swain. He was a <laughs> he was a fantastic footballer. Yeah, he really was, and he went on to be a very classy player. I liked him. Can't help it. These are people that I really okay. liked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then I'd I'd have Cook and Nevin. Funnily enough. Um, I had them as my two wingers. And would and you play them like I would, uh, switching, or would you play one? Oh, absolutely. One yeah, without a doubt. Without, with, without a doubt. And then I had Osgood and Hutchinson up front. Oh, you didn't go with Kerry? Nope. Okay. Nope. I, I just See, loved See, my Osgood team would beat Hutchinson. yours, wouldn't it? No, I doubt it. Of course it would. Nah. We, I tell you, Pat would get Ron sent off within about four minutes, without a doubt. Um, no, I know. I thought. I think. I think. Mine. You know. You're under underestimating it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my my subs were Barota, Spackman, and Harris. Oh, you only went with three subs. Yeah. Okay. I would. I would Didn't definitely go with striker then. Sorry, Didn't I would have had if I had two more. I'd have had Wise and Dixon. Okay. So, but that's the thing about football is everyone is going to think your yeah. side's better than mine and my <laughs> side's better than yours, which you mine go. obviously is. It's far more rounded. 
So, if you want to send us your uh, what you think your eleven would be uh, between nineteen seventy and nineteen ninety, players that played during that period, you can send them to at Chelsea Podcast on Twitter. I would be very interested to see what you come up with. Yeah, and, and my thinking was also to try and give a bit of variation because so there, there are ones who look. I agree with you. The people like Ron Harris and, and things that they're pretty obvious to put in and Dixon, but otherwise, you know, it's too easy. I mean, you look. We've come at it slightly different, and we've still got two or three names exactly the same. So mm. it's, it, you know, it, it could be that everyone has the same. Well, same I just went for I, I went for players that I just think would would win. I just went for the best team. You know, I mean, they're not necessarily my favourite players. I just think that I mean, you've gone for players that you know have a have a you know sort of an emotional connection with. I, I didn't really. I just went with. Yeah. You know, players that I think would be the best team between nine. But I mean, people are going to approach it differently, aren't they? So yeah, you know me, heart overhead every time. Every Gets time. me in terrible trouble. <laughs> but okay, well, look, um, we should go to Mr. Nizar Kinsella now because who's he? You know, Goal dot com's Chelsea correspondent, and um, he's been doing his weekly reports for us. And uh, this is a very interesting one. We'll, we'll talk about it uh, when we come back. So over to Naz. This is Nizar Kinsella from Goal.com reporting for the Chelsea. Um, just giving you my weekly update that I've become accustomed to and hopefully you have now as well um, in the lockdown times. Uh, yeah, just, uh, yeah, work-wise has been um, kind of, you know, a good week, I'd say. Um, probably the highlight of the week was writing an, uh, an interview with Joe Cole. It came about uh, quite rapidly on on Friday last week, and uh, yeah, um, I got I got told um, there was an opportunity to do it. Did I want to take it? I said yes, um, and yeah, quickly came up with some questions. Um, and if you don't know what Joe's doing, he's uh, set up his own charity called Heroes, uh, like an NHS um, frontline support charity. Um, uh, him and his um, wife Carly have set it up. So yeah, he's a founder. He's a co-founder. He's an ambassador, and um, they've raised quite a lot of money. I mean, he was. Really really you know one of the first to set up charity as well or or to do some major charitable acts uh, in the coronavirus crisis it was it's pretty much as it just started to um get real really that he he set that up and he he was seeing his trips cancelled abroad he he's left chelsea now he was a coach in chelsea's academy um decided to leave for his own ambitions to go and look at what other coaches are doing overseas which um a lot of top players do a lot of top coaches do that they they get the opportunity to go and watch training sessions in germany in italy in spain you know have i've heard of you know coaches coming over from south america or going from europe to south america as well so joe cole is trying to do all that really and uh, kind of see the world kind of uh, learn about coaching and um yeah i think he had big ambitions in the coaching setup which is why he left chelsea academy to uh, look into a few ideas and, and, and stuff um, but yeah it's kind of got knocked on its head he's decided to set up this charity which has taken up the majority of his time and uh, as of now he's raised over um, three quarters of a million for uh, the NHS which is no small feat and uh, yeah of course Joe's a footballer he got paid a lot but um, incredible that he's he's managed to um, raise that much money that quickly it's not a small sum and uh, I think he's aiming for a million uh, pound which would be massive. Um, I'm sure he'd raise more. Uh, a lot of players are doing this now. A lot of players at all levels are, are doing this, and there's the players in, um, together movement as well. But all that came weeks and weeks after Joe set his charity up, and yeah, he's sort of a trailblazer in that regard. Um, not a surprise to see him do that as well, because um, I've met Joe a few times, and the first time was in Tampa, Florida, where uh, he was playing for the the Rowdies, and. Um, yeah, I'm, I did an interview with him. It was almost an hour long, and we also spent about half an hour off camera. Just he had a meal, and 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 he was with his kids as well. They were they were playing around with his nanny in the background, and uh, yeah, he kind of just sat down talking about football and and life and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, he's he's a really interesting, progressive guy. Does things a bit differently, and um, yeah, I've interviewed him a few times since, and. Yeah, he just comes across as a very thoughtful guy. No way a, a footballer stereotype, uh, loved by Chelsea, loved by West Ham as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, what a guy who understands the game of football, but also like life more broadly. So yeah, he said he's he's rethinking a lot of his life right now with the coronavirus outbreak, and, and so are we all. Um, 
yeah, I've had a few other interviews as well and keeping on top of uh, Chelsea's um, wage cut situation. Um, that should be announced this week. So, yeah, uh, that's that's kind of my working week. Um, a little bit of an update. And, yeah, I'll be back again next week. Cheers, guys. So, Andy, Joe Cole, really mm. interesting um, piece there. And actually the piece that he's is up on goal.com is well worth reading. Jo- Joe Cole... Really interesting character goes on and talking there about, you know, going into coaching um, and then actually, you know, leaving Chelsea, traveling abroad, uh, understanding coaching, um, then now raising money for coronavirus. That's quite a quite a thing, isn't it? Because as, as Naz says, Joe is a, is a thinker. He's 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 different to a, a lot of people. Um, it's amazing, you know, seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds he's raised to go towards coronavirus, aiming for a million. Um, he's he's a, a bit of a philanthropist in a way, isn't he? Yeah, I, I hate to say I'm surprised, but I am a little re- a bit really because he never really, when he was with us, when he was a player, I mean, never came across particularly articulately in interview. He always came across as a you know, slightly inarticulate, typical footballer, really. You never really got a sense that there was a lot a lot going on with Joe. Um, but his actions have spoke much louder than his words, and he's gone on and done some really interesting things. And I think as a pundit, he's been good as well, you know, when he's the punditry that I've seen him do. Um, and he's clearly somebody who has improved and developed himself since leaving football. Um, and, you know, is a man that's got a very clear understanding of right and wrong and good and bad and you know what he what he can do to help and what his profile means and the fact that he's gone out there and you know raised all this money to you know to buy 3d printers to make visors for the net for the national health you know um he's put twenty five thousand pounds of his own money in there um if anybody is interesting in donated they should go to help them help us um and uh you know you can see all the links to donate on there um and i think it's wonderful what he's doing and he's set an example for a lot of of other high profile footballers who are in a position to do the same well again i mean we could we could talk about the, the fact that, you know, as Naz alluded to, the, the, there's the pay cuts happening at Chelsea. Um, so they're for- taking a 10% pay cut? Yes. Yeah. Which I think initially I was like, is that all? But then I thought, well, hang on a minute. You know, I, I kind of had to check myself, really. My initial reaction, if I'm honest, I'm being really honest, I, I did think, is that all? I could do a little bit better than that. But if you think about it, they haven't furloughed any staff. They're not taking any money off the taxpayer. They're not um, relying on anybody else to pay their debts or to pay their way. Um, they have given a lot back, Chelsea Football Club. We've spoken about the hotels and the fact that they're you know, working with Refuge, the domestic violence charity, and helping with food for key workers. And, they're, you know, and the Hammersmith and Fulham Food Bank and various other things. They're doing, they're doing a lot of good, socially responsible stuff. So there's no reason for footballers to take any more of a pay cut. We shouldn't be punishing footballers at a time like this. That doesn't make any sense to me. But it was interesting what my initial reaction was. And then when I just kind of had a word with myself and thought about it and thought, well, no, that's a, it's, a, it's a good gesture. It's good. If that means that the club can function without taxpayer money and, and continue on, then, then that's a good thing. And other clubs should take note. And uh, let's not forget, they, they all donated money into the foundation very early on, didn't they? They did. So they did, and I think Chelsea and the players have, have, have acted well throughout this. As I say, I'm not interested in punishing footballers or making them, you know... Uh, prostrate themselves in front of us or the national health or whatever i mean they they're entitled to earn their money as anybody else with a job is i just think the the thing that really upset people was very very rich clubs taking taxpayers money and we haven't done that so from that point of view there is no problem somebody said to me today they said yeah it's all very well we're talking about the different approaches from different football clubs and uh, i said it was interesting that tottenham um Normally, everyone talks about any decision being Daniel Levy's decision. And actually, the name that appears more and more in the articles is Joe Davis, who's the actual owner of Tottenham, who's managed to keep out of the press for a long time, uh, as far as Tottenham news goes. Uh, and it's, it's quite a thing, I think, that people have sort of pushed aside Daniel Levy as the one to criticise and have gone to the top man, who, as I say, has kept out of the way. Um, do you think that's the right thing to, to do, that uh, the press go, well, hold on, the truth is we know the real mover here. And also, with this situation, when we're talking about we've done really well as a club, 
this friend of mine also said, well, doesn't it just show that it's all a PR exercise? And I think this... Well, it is. Yeah. But that's, that's life. You know, life is a PR exercise. You know, how you present yourself and how you communicate and what side you show to anybody else is all PR, you know, on, on day-to-day life. You know, the fact that I might present a certain way to, you know, to, to people that meet me may not necessarily represent what I am. I mean, that's that's PR. It's about communicating the way you present yourself. And I think Chelsea have communicated the way they present themselves very well and they can back it up with a level of authenticity for the work they've done and the socially responsible work they've done. You know, whether there's a moral darkness at the heart of Chelsea, well, maybe there is. But you can only, have, you can only look at the actions they've undertaken and the things that they've done and judge them on that. Yeah, that's a fair point. And uh, it does show that if something's good, people are going to say things about it. If something's bad, people are going to say things about that. Does that mean you set out with the intention to get approval or disapproval i don't know it's it's a, it's a weird one and going back to what you were saying about tottenham well maybe it is joe davis you know but i mean i don't know it's only speculation isn't it? we don't know what goes on in the boardroom at tottenham hotspur what we do know is from the outside it looks like a pretty shocking series of decisions they've made um and if joe davis who is the billionaire owner who lives in a certain level of tax exile in the caribbean uh, wants to take this course of action, then obviously the buck stops with him. But we don't know who makes the executive decisions at Tottenham. And I would assume that that would be Daniel Levy, that he makes those boardroom decisions. And if it was his decision to furlough his staff and take the taxpayer money that was on offer, that's on him. But I don't know. That's just speculation. Oh, and we don't do speculation. Well, no, we shouldn't, no, do. No. we shouldn't do speculation because no. there, there's so many versions of the truth out there. Oh, don't, don't even start me on transfer rumours and things. And I just cannot you be love bothered. a transfer rumor i don't i really don't uh, i hate them you know the the latest one coutinho is about to sign this afternoon i don't think so i can't i can you honestly you're, 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 you're speculating about transfers right now right at this very second that's what you're no, doing I'm you're using speculating that at transfers i'm not because i don't care but d- wouldn't you say it's very unlikely that anyone can do a transfer at this time of the situation because how can anyone know what the future is at all? We can't even think about what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone in a month's time. I can't yeah, it's, see. It's interesting times, isn't it? I mean, I would imagine those discussions are going on in earnest. Um, you know, whether you can actually get anything over the line at the moment. How are you going to do a medical? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Nobody can travel. Nobody can be examined. It's, uh, you know, it's, 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 difficult, it's difficult times. Also, as well, if you are a Spurs or, you know, one of these clubs that has taken taxpayers' money in order to furlough its staff and then go and spend £100 million in the transfer market, what's that going to look like? What are the optics of that? If you're a club that, you know, like Norwich or, or whoever have pleaded poverty throughout this and then go and buy a player for millions of pounds... What's you know what? Well, there should be some kind of sanction against clubs doing that, shouldn't there? There should yeah. be something that basically says if you take taxpayers' money and plead poverty, you are not allowed to make any transfers during this window. That would be my view on it. Yeah, it, it's because it makes a mockery if they don't. Well, it's you could take that into all sorts of areas. You could look at Virgin. You know that that's a that's a, a similar kind of situation. When do you give handouts? When do you not give handouts? Again, it's, it's a well, curious yeah, time. All right, give them a handout, but they're not allowed to take any dividends for five years. You know, they're not allowed to pay their shareholders for five years, you know, yeah. or something. I mean, there has to be some mechanic in place, you know, that basically says, you know, if you are a hugely wealthy, resourced organisation, whether that be an airline or a football club, um, okay, we'll help you. But conversely you're not allowed to do this in response because that makes a mockery of the system if you do. Well said. Okay, now, moving on, we should go to first, worst and best. And this week, it's with Sean Dyer. Hi, my name's Sean Dyer. 49 years old from Guildford. I've had a season ticket on or off probably for about the last 15 years. Currently, I sit in the Matthew Hardy and Upper. Being in Guildford's lucky because uh, I'm nice and close to Chelsea, so I've been to lots of different games over the years. Straight up the A3, it's only about a 45-minute drive, um, so you know, not not too not too bad a place to come from. Going to do my first, worst, and best Chelsea games. I became a Chelsea fan when I was young. Um, the first thing I remember probably when I was six or seven, but I actually went to my first game in April '82 when I was 11. 
It was in the old second division. Um, Stamford Bridge literally was falling down in those days and we managed to uh, hold on for a 2-0 defeat. Charlie George scored that day, which was probably the most memorable thing. Scored a great free kick. At the time, I didn't realise how good Charlie George was, or really how good he was, or how good he had been. Um, but I soon kind of learnt that that wasn't such a bad thing. Charlie George was a really good player. My worst was in February '95 um, FA Cup fourth round replay. After coming runners up the year before, we probably thought it'd be easy to go one better. In the fourth round, we got drawn to Millwall away. It wasn't a game I wanted to go to. Um, it was a nil-nil draw, which meant that we had a home replay. Had doubts about going to the games, because I know that Millwall's not exactly the nicest game to go to, but under lights at Stamford Bridge is always a special occasion, especially in the early mid-90s, so it was one uh, I was looking forward to. It wasn't a bad Millwall team, even though they were in the division below. It was the team of Keller, Thatcher, Ray and Roberts, but also uh, Dave Mitchell was playing up front for them. We drew one all, two late goals, um, but from the moment the game kicked off, it was feral. It was an awful atmosphere. We went on to lose on penalties and it all kicked off on the pitch, off the pitch, in the stadium... In the streets, it was awful. It was one of those where, at the end of the day, I was quite pleased to get home safe. Um, and good luck to Millwall in the next round, I suppose. My best game actually wasn't that far uh, far away. Um, I went to Bruges away game in uh, a couple of weeks after the Millwall game. It was the first away game I'd ever been to in Europe with my mate Andy Harris. It was the old club trip and... Um, we got on the coaches, went over and thought we were going to have a lovely day. Um, everyone on the ferry was buying loads of beer, coming back to the coaches and finding out they weren't allowed to take it on the coach. There was beer stacked up everywhere and the staff on the ferry were absolutely rubbing their hands with glee, knowing that as soon as we got off, there was going to be tonnes of beer for them to put in their cars and take home. It wasn't a great trip, um, the police boarded the coach a couple of times, checked passports, IDs, a couple of things like that. And we thought that we would get to go into Bruges, but we didn't. We sat in a car park for about six hours and uh, got driven straight to the, ga- to the ground for the game. We lost 1-0. Didn't realise till I looked at it recently that it was a wise own goal. Um, but a great trip for the memory, but not a great game. One thing I do remember at half-time was that um, the crowd were a little bit down, the Chelsea fans, and they played madness. Over the, uh, over the tannoy, the Chelsea fans woke up and halfway through the song they pulled it. Never mind. The home game, we had to win by two clear goals in order to go through. Steen and Furlong did the business both in the first half. It was a long second half, but I remember when we won the game, and it was probably more special to me because I'd been to the away leg as well, but I remember after the game bouncing out the ground. Such a great game, such a great atmosphere. It was kind of the period where we were just beginning to see how good a team we could be. The mid-90s team of Peacock and Steen and Wise. And uh, it led us to great things. And, and, you know, hopefully we're still going to be doing those for the next few years. So that's my first, worst and best. I hope you enjoy them. And we're back. Andy, Andy, Andy. 1995, FA Cup fourth round replay, Millwall. You mm. and me. Do you remember? Do you remember that remember, evening? I remember it very well. I do remember it very well. It was late January, I seem to remember. It was cold. It was horrible. It was horrible. I was in the, the Matthew Harding stand with you, yeah, and Damon, yeah, and Damon Albarn from Blur, and a bunch of other people. Wimpy, I think, was there as well. Yeah, and we were all there for the penalty shootout, which John Spencer missed the crucial penalty, saved by Casey Keller the Millwall goalkeeper, and then pandemonium. Yeah, well, as Sean says, it was feral. It was mm. horrid, wasn't it? Was it was the last time I think I saw a proper on-the-pitch riot at Chelsea. Yeah, I mean, there have were... been a few scuffles outside since. I remember when Cardiff came to, to Chelsea in the FA Cup, there were scuffles outside the ground and sort of slightly you know, muted running battles. That was a proper running battle inside and outside the ground. Yeah, and I had to keep hold of you because you wanted to take all the Millwall on. You You've did. You've totally misremembered this. <laughs> You've always say this, and it's not true. I'll tell you exactly what happened. I was dry, I was riding my. I had a little. I had a Vespa at the time, 
had a PX125 E Vespa, very cool and um, original one. And I used to ride it to the ground and park it up outside what's now the butcher's hook. And um, I had my crash helmet with me. And as uh, the game finished, Damon Albarn from Blur, uh, the band, turned around to me and said, let's go on the pitch. And I said, if you go on the pitch, you'll probably get killed because somebody will recognise you and it would be very, very bad idea to do it. So I sort of grabbed his shoulder. Bad PR. <laughs> so I grabbed his shoulder and said to him, don't be stupid. And as I grabbed his shoulder, I dropped my motorcycle helmet and my motorcycle helmet went sort of pinwheeling down the steps in the Matthew Harding stand so I had to go and chase after it pushing people out the way to get to my crash helmet and that is what in your head is me going on the pitch and it's not yeah but you were saying come on then <laughs> I do remember we all went back to um, Maison Rouge studios after the game which is where Blur were recording weren't they yeah. they were recording part life and sat in there and watched Watch the running battles on the CCTV cameras outside. <laughs> That's right. Yes, the CCTV. God, if only we'd had our phones, we could have filmed that and things. It, it was nuts. That it was night. nuts. Yeah, yeah, it was nuts. Yeah, I think we stayed there till really rather late in the end. Mark until... Steen was up front in that game. I seem to remember Mark yeah, Steen Mark... And, and Mark Steen and and John Spencer, the smallest front line potentially ever. Yeah, exactly. And Mark Steen missed a. a Massive chance right at the end, right in front of us as well, a header which he should have buried. Yeah, well, as Sean talks about, you know, a few weeks later, his best game was Bruges and he went yeah, away. That was great. Away and at home, and Steen and Furlong scored the goals. And yeah, yeah. Was that the goal where Furlong beat it down with his hands and we all pissed ourselves laughing? Or oh, that was another European game, wasn't it? Can't Do you remember, remember the one where he charged the goal? All goalkeeper. I remember of Bruges, I was at the game, I was also in the Matthew Harding for that game as well, and I, I, um, I just remember it being a brilliant, brilliant night, but I don't remember any of the game. No. Well, I remember getting slightly crushed afterwards, leaving the stadium. Well, that's because you were trying to take on all the Bruges fans as well. <laughs> You've no, always but... thought this about the Millwall game, and it's complete nonsense. <laughs> Look, for me, it's perfect. That memory of you will always stay that way if you swing in your helmet around. <laughs> but anyway, you, you know, he talked about that bruised trip as well, the away leg, because he did both legs. Yeah, um, I didn't do the away leg. No, but what's the best away trip you've ever had, do you think? And no cup finals allowed. Well, you say no cup finals, right? And obviously yeah. cup finals are brilliant. But mine is actually a semi-final. Okay. Um, when we went to see uh, Chelsea v Wimbledon in the semi-final of the FA Cup in 1997 at Highbury. Yep. Um, and two great goals from Mark Hughes and an absolute worldie from Zola. Oh, um, and that back you know, heel. Yeah, that's right. And then Drag the back. fantastic, it was a gorgeous day. You know, we were at Wembley for the first time since, well, certainly in the FA Cup, first time since 1994 where we'd been beaten comprehensively by Man United. And we were there at Wembley to pay Middlesbrough in the FA Cup final. Um, and, you know, the hopes were high. And, of course, we went on with that Roberto Di Matteo goal, you know, uh, early on and Eddie Newton to, to win that and it to be, you know, the start of the glory years, really. So even though I said you don't have a final, you've wasn't actually a final. kind of yeah, but you yeah, but you've wasn't included the but you've included talking about the final. I as talked well. about the final, but my my favourite away game is not a final; it's a semi final. So really, it's, it's but there's, a been, there's millions, there's millions of away games that I've loved, but that I think I took my wife to that game as well for some reason. I don't know why? But she was with me at that game. She loved it as well, and it was it was one of those. I don't know. It just felt full of joy and hope and wonder and you know possibility. It was great. Well, it's still when winning was shiny new. What about you? Know? Yeah, um, oh, I don't know. I, I need to give this some thought, actually, because yeah, I've really enjoyed Bordeaux away in the Champions League. Right. Uh, that was just an amazing... Uh, I mean, we've had some nice European oh, away games. Barcelona's we? and yeah, Milan. We've done, we've done all those, haven't we, which are great. But in terms of the football, if, if that, the question was the football, I think it was that game. Yeah, I well. I mean, I've seen us battered Spurs away, and I've seen us. I mean, I was at the six-one game at White Hart Lane when we smashed them, and I was at you know I've been at you know brilliant games at uh, um, uh, Arsenal as well. I mean, I've done you know some some brilliant away games, but I just don't know there was something special and magical about that Wimbledon Chelsea semi. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with you that it's right up there. And maybe I'll have a think for next week yeah. and come up with mine because I'm immediately just thinking of that because we were right behind that goal for that Zola, yeah. um, Zola goal. And you could see it. And you know how sometimes special goals, you either just don't really understand what happens or they seem to go in slow motion and you go, I see what he's doing. I see what he's doing. I see what he's doing. He's done it. It's a really strange thing with football. And also as well, the fact that it was at Highbury as well, which felt a, li- it felt a little bit naughty that we'd completely taken over their stadium. <laughs> Brilliantly and we were sort of sitting in, And they hated it. I've got Arsenal friends who hated the fact that we'd taken over Highbury for the day and sitting in their seats. It was great. <laughs> it was great. And the perfect thing was the place was full and not an Arsenal fan in sight. Exactly. It was takeover. No, I, I loved it. And it, yeah, it was. That was special. Well, okay. Well, we're, we're just about out of time, Andy. Um, I think it's been really fun talking to you this week, as always. Thanks, as always, to, to Naz Kinsella. Thanks to Sean Dyer for his first, worst, and best. Uh, and also, thanks ever so much to you, Andy, as usual. Um, well, what can I say except keep on staying safe? And I hope yeah. next week's good for you, and we'll catch up then. Let's um, just remind people of the socials if they want to follow us. They can follow you where? They can follow me on Twitter at Kerry Levy. or on Insta- Yes, yeah, spelled correctly. Uh, How do they spell it? Because nobody C- will spell it correctly. Okay, yeah, at Kerry Levy, C-E-R-I-L-E-V-Y, or on, on Instagram, which is at Kerry Levy 1. And that's where you just post up pictures of things you found in a skip, right? That's right, exactly, including my friendship with you, if you're going to be like that. <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Mr. A. Saunders at, uh, on Twitter or at One True Saunders on Instagram. You can follow the Chelsea Podcast on Twitter at Chelsea Podcast uh, or on Instagram, or, which is at The Chelsea Podcast. So, yeah, follow us there. We'd love to see you and any questions for next week, gratefully received. Perfect. All right, Andy, you look after yourself and stay safe, everyone. All right. Cheers. This is a Playback Media production. Get all the associated links for this podcast at chelseapodcast.net. Sports Social Podcast Network.